0: Has got uh, Redmond to aim at, and so to it, has gone very quickly, and Redmond has broken
2: down. All I wanted was Olympic gold medal. I decided to get up and continue running. He just wants to finish. My it dad jumped out of the crowd of and assisted me over the line for the last 100
1: metres. Would you say that that was the toughest thing to overcome as an athlete? Oh, of
2: course it is. How do you deal with it? You don't have no choice it's going to make or break you.
1: I've just finished an unbelievably insightful conversation with Derek Redmond, a former Olympian and an amazing businessman. His insights into mental resilience and toughness have found inspiring. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. It helps more than you'll know going forward. And we are only pushing to make this podcast better and better. So please hit that subscribe button and help us grow. So everybody, today I've had the pleasure of sitting down opposite Derek Redmond. We actually met on a rally, our friend Zach. We went away to Belgium for a few days, but it was kind of so chaotic. And I think I spent the entire time drunk getting tattoos of sausage dogs (laughs) on my ankle. But I didn't actually spend as much time with you as I'd love to. And I really, really found you inspiring and wanted to sit Thank down you. and have a conversation with you. Appreciate it. Um, but for people that maybe recognise your face but need to know a little bit more about where you're at now mm-hmm. and kind of a bit more about you, Derek, in your own words, who are you and what do you do?
2: <laughs> okay, so my name's Derek Redmond. Um, I guess people uh, will know me from my former life. I used to be an athlete, 400-metre uh, runner, um, and obviously ran for Great Britain 56 times. Um, I've been British, European, Commonwealth, world champion, competing in two Olympic Games, uh, famously, uh, I guess I'm known for actually not winning a race. Um, 1992 Olympic semi final, where I was um, joint favourite for the gold medal in the Barcelona Olympics. Come to the semi final and I pulled my hamstring 150 metres down or into the race, which is halfway down the back straight. I decided to get up and continue running, and my dad jumped out of the crowd and came onto the track and assisted me over the line for the last 100 metres. And that scene is the one that most people will know me for. Um, after that, what else have I done? I got into basketball uh, professionally and had one international for England. Then I got into professional rugby and tried out for England, but just missed out because I wanted to be the first person to represent the country in three sports. Then I got out of professional sports, got into um, what was going to be a hobby, uh, uh, riding motorbikes. I ended up turning that into a sport and winning a national title in 2011. Then I got into kickboxing and won a national title, I think when I was 48. And then when I was 53, I turned semi-pro as a boxer and I'm now 57, still a semi-pro boxer, seven fights, seven wins. Uh, And the only reason I'm not fighting this year is because I'm on a bit of a dental journey. So um, I've got to wait for all that to happen. So that's kind of my sporting life. Uh, Business life, I'm what's known as a business performance coach. Um, So I basically uh, take what I've learned from the world of sport all the successes that I've learned from the world of sport, pick them up, cross the line into the world of, of, of um, you know, into business, and I drop everything there and, and teach people that. So it can be with individuals, teams, organisations. Um, there's a lot of stuff around mindset. I do stuff around high-performing teams, uh, communication, all sorts of stuff that helps people be successful in whatever they want to be. So that's pretty much where I am and what I'm doing now, in a nutshell. That's
1: amazing. Thanks for <laughs> summarising that. I think there's quite a lot there that people are be like, whoa, just like me, but I guess the main question that comes from that is being an Olympian, where does that begin? What did life look like when you were younger growing up? How did you get on that path and who inspired you to do, do you know, that?
2: Do you know what the funny thing is? I had a regular life. I was a, a young cheeky kid, um, you know, uh, wasn't born into you know, anything, anything fancy. I was born in a council house. I had two loving and supporting parents. Um, I love running and jumping around. Um, at the age of seven, I got the opportunity to join an athletics club because I just liked it, and I did. Did a bit of everything. Um, worked out that I wasn't good at most things, but I was quick. So I became a sprinter. Uh, and for many years, I ran hundreds and two hundreds from about the age of eight till about 15. When I was 15, I ran my first 400 metres uh, race. Uh, won that and broke the county age group record, and that was, I guess, the first sign of "Oh, I'm actually all right at this." But again, there was no—I didn't even and know what, what got the Olympics you was.
1: into that athletics club. What? What was? The I just moment? wanted to go. You I just, just wanted to
2: do something. I just, I just liked running and jumping, and I was relatively quick at school. And what actually happened was uh, when I, I would have been at primary school, and we had a primary uh, school sports day. And at the sports day, um, so I I used to live in Milton Keynes. I was born in Milton Keynes. And um, I'm at this uh, sports day and they got a young guy from the local athletics club, Milton Keynes Athletics Club, who was an international. His name was Ian Stewart, to come and present all the prizes. And he did. And he gave a little bit talk about, you know, the local club, what days they train, where they train. And my mum and dad were at the sports day watching me. And I just remember turning and I go, mum, dad, can I go? Can I join? And they said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, okay. And it just took me long. Simple as that. There was no, no scouts, nothing magical to say this guy is going to be the next best thing. I just went along and did a bit of everything. As I say, um, by the time I was 15, um, we'd moved to Northampton and I, I'd switched clubs. I'd moved to a club in Northampton for obvious reasons. As I say, I ran my first 400, broke the County record. And I decided at the end of that year to move from hundreds to two, from hundreds and two hundreds to 400. The following year, I would have been now 16. I was number two in the country for my age group. I had my first junior international. And that's pretty much where my, I would say my athletics career started. Again, Olympics wasn't even on the, on the radar. It was, wow, I'm a junior international. And were
1: you enjoying it?
2: Loving it. Absolutely loving it. I mean, I had from the age of seven, to be honest with you. I mean, I loved, I love and loved sport anyway. Played a hell of a lot of basketball in my school years as well. And actually, my aim was to be an NBA basketball player. That was my first dream, but I happened to be better at athletics than I was at basketball, although I represented Northampton and Northamptonshire and tried out for England schoolboys basketball, but didn't quite make it. Um, but the athletics sort of went on. By the time I was 18, still a junior, I was now mixing with top. Uh, the top guys in the senior ranks of Great Britain. And when I say mixing, I was getting invited to compete in races with them, getting absolutely hammered by them, but just to be in a race with the best 400 meter runners in the country was great. 1984 was mine, and I'd say my dad's, first, first glimpse that I could become an Olympian. So the 84 Olympic Games were in LA, and miraculously I made it into the Olympic trials. Didn't think I was going to be good enough, but I made it into the Olympic trials and I finished fifth in the final. They're at good old crystal palace. And I finished fifth in the final and for the individual 400, they take the top three, but for the four by 400, they take the top six. And I thought I might've made it into the Olympics here. And you wouldn't know straight away because what happens is even though I finished six, a few days later, there's a selection meeting. And then a few days after that, they release the team, you know, to the world. And for a few days after, I was trying to keep a lid on things. And I thought, not sleeping. Absolutely. I'm thinking, I'm going to make it to the games. I think I'm going to be picked for the relay, whether I run or not, because I'd only be one of the reserves. As it happens, they didn't take me. They picked the top five and then they picked an 800 metre runner who had made it in the individual 800 as the sixth member of the relay squad, which was the right thing to do. (laughs) His name was Gary Cook. And um, in the final of the four by 400, Great Britain won a silver. It was it was Chris Akabusi to Gary Cook to Todd Bennett to Phil Brown. And they won a silver medal. So they made the right decision. However, for me, that was the moment that I knew the Olympics were on, you know, uh, within my grasp. And the next Olympics, obviously, was four years later, 88 in Seoul, which that was my first Olympic Games.
1: That's really interesting because... Most people would have been absolutely gutted by that moment. But what your mindset did was say, oh, hang on a second. This just means I'm close enough to achieve that.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, it wasn't on my radar. So um, it was almost, I wasn't disappointed because I wasn't expecting it. Um, um, So it was, it was, if you like, it was more of a sign. Um, It was more of a sign of what I could do and what could happen. I'm a massive believer in, you know, when people always look at success, they always look at the big picture and they forget to actually celebrate the small successes. You know, when you first step on that first rung of a ladder, that's your first step to get into the top. I'm not saying you should stop and cheer and then go to the next one, but recognize you've made the first rung and then you've made the second rung and you've made the third rung. You know, and, and some of the work that I do, I, there's, a, there's a, a bit of a, it's not really a saying, but something that I say, and it's basically, imagine two men climbing I don't know, Mount Everest, Mount Kilimanjaro, walking and walking and walking and they're scaling their way up. And they, they've been climbing for days and days. And one of them turns around and says, oh my God, we've been going for days. Look how far we've still got to go. My response would be, I'd tap him on his arm and say, but turn around and look how far we've come. And sometimes that's enough to give people the, the energy, uh, the motivation to keep on going. And... I believe we can be too fixated on that goal in which some cases you haven't got any control over rather than fixating on the things that you can control and the things that you've done and the things that you've, you've actually achieved. Um, and that happened a lot in my life. So one of the things that I, that I did, and I, and I, and I say this to people, I trained in America with a group of athletes who were all quicker than me. I was ranked fifth in the world when I joined that squad and I was the slowest person in the group. Um, And I wanted that. We had the number one, we had the Olympic champion over 200 metres, Olympic champion over 400 and 400 hurdles and the Olympic bronze medalist over 400 metres and then me. And I spent my time chasing these guys. While I'm chasing these guys, albeit I'm seeing the backs of their heads in training, what I don't realise is happening, well, I did, but what is actually happening is they're elevating me and pulling me along. And you didn't realise that at the time? Well, I I didn't realise it at the time, although that was the reason I was there. And then when you then kind of stop and look at the times that I was doing, yes, it was slower than theirs, but then you realise you're quicker than just about everybody else. So they're pulling you along. And sometimes I think people look at the wrong part of success. You know, success, you don't go from failure to success. You go from, if you like, failure or from the start, failure is the wrong phrase, to a tiny bit of success, that first step, then the second step, then the third step, then you might take a step back and then a couple of more steps forward, then a step back. These are all progressive points of success. And a lot of people forget that. And they still feel disappointed because they hadn't reached there. They haven't reached the top, but they've actually, they're a third the way than where they were before. Um, You know, and if, you know, if you, you, if you're of the mindset, this is where I want to be. And you look at where you were five years ago to where you are now, you might not where you want to be, but you're a lot further ahead than where you were five years ago. And people forget that and don't take that into consideration. Um, and I, and I believe you should. And that's the sort of thing that you do in sport. And that happens with personal best. We you know when you keep getting slightly quicker, slightly quicker, slightly quicker, a hundred of a second quicker, great. That's, you know, it's a step forward in training. I'm now running 300 reps or 200 reps or 150 reps in these times, my God, that's a step in the right direction. And all these things are what's going to help you do it when it, when it really matters. Because when you line up on that start line in Olympic final, you'd be surprised to hear you've got talent, but so was the other seven people <laughs> else they wouldn't be there. And actually you've got to find something mental, not physical that's going to differentiate you between them. For me, it was always, right, I know I've done this in training. I know I've done this work. Um, I used to train Christmas Day when most of my competitors didn't. And even if you and I were racing and, you know, you beat me four times, whatever the case may be, I'd line up against you and go, I pretty much know you had Christmas Day off. I did two training sessions on Christmas Day. You didn't. Now, it doesn't matter how good those sessions were. Two more sessions I know I've done that you haven't done. That's enough to give me a mental edge over you. And that's all I need. I'm not bothered about what you're thinking about me. I'm thinking about me. So it's just the way that how you position these things. How were
1: you thinking that way at that time? Who, because you're obviously a performance coach now, you mentioned that at the start mm-hmm. and you install these things in athletes these days and help them to understand this and gain that mental advantage by training them. Who did that for you?
2: I would say it was a combination of people. And by the way, it, most of the time is isn't athletes. This is people in the commercial world. I actually very rarely work with sports people. I mentor a couple, um, a few, but it's mainly people in the business. Um, I would say a lot of this came from my dad. A lot of it came with the people that I surrounded myself with. Um, training partner, my um, training partners, my coach. Um, certainly in my senior years, as an athlete, my sports psychologist. Um, you know, um, my head physio was a great, great guy, not only what he could do physically with his work, but to talk he to. had a great head on him as well. Um, my masseur was another really intelligent guy. Um, and someone again, who, who, um, who, who I could talk to and would say the right things. And I had a good team of people around me. Um, the last thing I wanted was a whole sycophantic group of people that just said, yes, Derek, yes, Derek, that's great. I wanted people to say that was crap that was pants. What are you doing? What are you saying? What do you think, you know, you're doing type of thing. And I was very fortunate to have that, but I guess it all started and spearheaded with me, old man. 100%.
1: Cause you have to have mental resilience to deal with that.
2: Uh, again, these, these are things that you can develop. I believe, uh, I was giving a presentation last night at, um, Cambridge university, uh, um, and resilience was one of the topics. And I believe it's something that you can develop. I believe it's something that you can learn. Um, and, if you understand the game, I think you will, you will understand, and it doesn't matter what game you play, um, and I'm not talking about sport here, I'm talking about life, I'm talking about business, I'm talking about could be sport. You do realise that you need patience, you need resilience, because there are very few people in this world that have said, this is my aim and gone from A to B without any issues at all.
1: Which is exactly why I speak to
2: them. Absolutely. You know, and you look at, I always say, you look at the most successful people in the world, and I will show you, I will point out those same people who've possibly had the most failures, the toughest times, you know, as well. You know, Michael Jordan talks about how he's missed over 11,000 shots, how he's missed over 300 plus game winning shots. And because of missing all those shots um, and game winning shots and, and, and normal shots, that's what's made him. Person that we all love and know, Jeff Bezos, Amazon was. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's company number sixteen or seventeen. The others went bankrupt. And same with Elon. Same with Elon Musk. Um, you know, Colonel Sanders didn't actually get a break until he was in his sixties. You know, um, he was kicked out of the forces. I can't remember if it was the army, the navy, whatever it was. Um, he had problems at home. Um, he was at one point he was selling his chicken door to door people saying there's no mileage in this mate and he just kept on going all of those people if you take their shoes and socks off and look at the soles of their feet they'll all be scarred where they've walked over hot holes nails glass to get where they are every single one of them
1: no i totally agree to be, to be fair even at um even at 24 i've had those moments where i think i've had two two maybe three things i've tried now that haven't worked mm-hmm. But it is genuinely amazing what you do learn from that. I think one of the biggest takeaways from the first thing when I was really young that didn't work was that I had absolutely no understanding of VAT and gross margin at all. (laughs) One of the biggest takeaways from the next thing that didn't work is that I didn't plan my business plan good enough to understand what one of the costs were going to be. Um, But the one that luckily did work for me, which was an online paving store, we didn't even sell anything for the first year. And three years later, it, it COVID picked it up and threw it (laughs) basically when everyone was out doing their gardens. But and I I think you've got to accept, even I try and accept in my brain that going forward, there's going to be things that don't work, but it's just like with this podcast, you've got to sit down every week, you've got to get it out, you've got to push. And um, if you get one out when someone else misses one, then hopefully it's going to give you an advantage. And that goes back to those principles that you were basically saying a minute ago.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've had a failing business, I had a business, blimey, me and my, um, business partner, we, uh, set up, he was my strengths and conditioning coach when I was competing and we set up a company, um, making, um, strength equipment, um, fitness, strength and fitness equipment. And it was called Olympics, uh, for obvious reasons, Pectorials Olympics and anyway, um, nightmare with the name and trying to get it past <laughs> uh, the uh, IOC with, um, the logo. And at all the all first anyway. hurdle. <laughs> yeah. At the first hurdle. Yeah. Pardon the pun. Uh, anyway, um, we hit the gym and fitness industry. Wow. With a bang. You know, and, and we, we put a lot of money into R&D in the early days, came up with three ranges of equipment, uh, a budget range, uh, a real nice range and a plate loading range. Um, spent a lot of our own money in, in, in R&D, um, set up a, uh, this company, um, and we hit the ground running. We were doing, um, you know, people's um, individual gyms, private gyms. We were doing stuff for local authorities. We were getting into um, football clubs, premiership football clubs and, and, and you know, all the way down the leagues. Um, and it was, it was brilliant. Um, we subcontracted all the work out to a company locally. Um, things were going so well, we were in great life. Then we decided to buy that company. Um, big mistake, number one, because okay. manufacturing costs. Um, well, first of all, health and safety. Are, 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 I was going to say, because
1: sometimes you gain gross margin when you manufacture something yourself.
2: Yeah, sometimes, but then it's also the cost of, the cost of materials was, 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 was just astronomical. Timelines and getting the materials was a nightmare because they weren't all from this country. Um, the actual weight blocks that you so when you go to a gym and you pull a little pin out and you put the weight in the, the weight stacks, they weren't made over here. They were coming. So and supply like, chain. Supply the chain. So all of a sudden, when stuff goes wrong, it was now a problem before. Um, and you know, when it was now a problem, we can go from you know supplier A, and if he hasn't got them, all right, on this occasion we'll go to supplier B or supplier C. When it's yours difficult to do that and especially if you haven't done it at all. Uh, oh yeah so anyway we got ourselves into a whole spider's web um of, of of problems and that company went under about three years later on top of that the problem that we had is the big boys because we were starting to be one of two things were going to happen we were being a pain in the butt to the big boys to the life fitnesses to the um, techno gyms of this world and when you're a small company um and, and auto trader do this very well, and there are others that do. But when you're a small company in their field, and you're a pain in the butt, and, and a, when I mean a pain in the butt, you're starting to have a bit of success, and they're noticing you. You're not going to change their business. However, they're noticing you that you're starting to nip at their heels. They do one of two things: they'll kill or kill. they'll either buy you to shut you up, and say right, is whatever, get out of the way. Which mm-hmm. is something that um, auto trader have done. Uh, very well for a long time, or they'll do what they can to get rid of you. And unfortunately, um, we were, we started losing business left, right and centre to the bigger companies that could afford to give huge discounts that we couldn't. And it got to the point where we're almost selling at a loss just to get the jobs. And, you know, we couldn't afford to do that. I I lost, we lost a massive, massive deal with um, Middlesbrough Football Club. Um, a number of years ago, I'm going, I'm going back to the nineties and we had been up there. We'd done everything. We've gone backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Uh, I think it was Brian Robson was the.
1: That's shaving off pennies. Uh,
2: oh gosh, it was a nightmare. Anyway, we lost that. And the, the, the net result was we got to the point where we'd grown so quick and had too much on our plate. We couldn't sustain it. Business went, and I personally went under for 2.7. Um, everything went houses, cars, the life. And you know, I had to completely start. And again. that's,
1: that's crazy because when people think of say a business failure, people think that, Oh, I think the initial stereotype is, Oh, it didn't get off the ground. They didn't get sales. Mm. Um, I think that's probably the stereotype, Yeah, but it's crazy lot more to actually to hear a story that's just like, Oh no, that wasn't the problem. Absolutely. The problem yeah. was we were too busy and then this and
2: this yeah. and this yeah. happened. And it was a whole load of things. I mean, I'm, I'm whizzing through here, but there was a whole load of things. Now, I'm not blaming anybody because it was all me and my business partner and we were just inexperienced, um, naive to a lot of things, um, made decisions really when we shouldn't have done, um, um, and said yes to things where we should have said no and said no to things when we should have said yes. But it was all a learning curve. And you know, that was oh, that's about 30 years ago when I then. That's a lot of, in fact, that is a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, it was mid nineties, uh, mid to late nineties. And when I set up what I'm doing now, and I remember having a conversation with my dad, gross rest his soul, Um, and I was talking about, you know, the speaking side of things and getting in, into the more training, speaking and training side of things. And my dad for a joke who invested in my business, by the way, so he lost out money as well. Um, turned around to me and said, so are you going to run this business? Cause the way you ran your last business, it didn't quite work out the way that you wanted And I sort of flippantly turn around and says, I don't know, the only thing I know that I'm good at is sport. So my old man turned around and said, well, run it like a sport then. Run it with the same attitude you competed at and the way that you you went about your business in the world of sport.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's what I did, and here I am
2: 30 years later. Running around Belgium with you in fast cars and having fun, and <laughs>
1: yeah, this is probably a brilliant time to mention that you have got a sick murdered out Bentley Mulsanne, and you get out of it and you look like the Bond villain. <laughs> it's, it's,
2: it's it's actually it's not Mulsanne. It's actually a Flying Spur. Oh, flying Spur, yeah. So it's a Flying Spur, but it's um it's had the Onyx treatment. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's had a it was taken to Onyx and and they were let loose on it for for a number of months, and yeah, the engine is. Well, you know, um, if you could hear it over the sound of the engine of your motor, um, you know it sounds absolutely unbelievable. It's a oh, love it, yeah, yeah. We
1: felt there was so much singing going on in our car that we couldn't hear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> going the wrong way. Everything we yeah. had, a, we had a great time. Yeah, yeah. So one of the next things I want to get into is so we've spoken about, um, or we've begun to spoke about, some of your business life, for argument's sake, which we'll need to get on how you go from being an Olympian to to business owner and where you learned some of those things or what inspired you to do that. However, I'd like to get into the the business of an athlete. Okay. Because I haven't heard many people talk about, I understand that sponsorship's a big part of it. That's definitely from the outside. Yeah. But if you're so focused training twice a day, you you mentioned, um, Seuss, mentioned personal trainer a team of people to get you to the position yeah. where you can compete on that level. Yeah. How the hell is that all funded?
2: Um, <laughs> by me, <laughs> I mean, it, you don't start off like that. You okay. know, when I joined the club, it <laughs> was just me, bank of dad, bank yep. of mum and dad taking me down, you know, and you know, you, you just compete and they pay that's for your That's your kit thing. And, yeah. That's your, that's your sport. No different from any other family. For me, um, I would say when I was 18 ish, I turned up, At a sports shop, my dad was, it was a weekend. We were getting ready to go to Wales to a place called Cumbran and it was the UK Championships and I was competing. I needed some new spikes. So Bank of Dad drove into Northampton, um, went to this sports shop um, to get some spikes and then we were going to go down to Wales, stay overnight and that was it. Got talking to the guy who owned the sports shop and um, he worked for a a bigger organisation whose name is just, uh, Pentland Industries that used to own Reebok
1: Oh, okay. Um,
2: and a few other companies at the time. Uh, Kappa, um, which is, I don't know if you know the brand Kappa, it's like a, a man and a woman sitting back to back. It's an Italian mate.
1: Yeah, I have seen it.
2: And um, anyway, we got talking, and he, um, my dad was talking to him about me and this, and they went, Oh, yeah, look, you know, we can do something. So he said, Look, to pick the pack Kappa brand, you can have whatever you want. So we bought the spikes, and he just gave me a load of kit. And that was my first introduction of, of any form of sponsorship. A year later, um, Nike approached me, um, and said, look, we're interested in, in signing you because I'm now. And is that from scouts? Cause social media is yeah, not around right that media. So, so there's no, no, no social no, no, media. No, no. No, no. It, this say, was from, from scouts. Nike scouts for okay. people who worked at Nike that are in the game. This guy was, you know, um, head of the athletics division. Cause then I've had of football, athletics, golf, whatever in the UK. And, uh, he approached me, um, and said, look, we can't pay you any money, but we'll give you all the kit you can you can store. Um, and I went up to Newcastle, met with the guys at, at Nike. And if you've ever watched, uh, the Jordan program about his boots, Oh, I can't think of the name of it, uh, about how Jordan became to Nike. It was that, but not quite at that level. Um, you know, they take you up there, they talk about what they do as an organization, what they want to do with you, this and that and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, cut a long story short. I ended up signing a four year deal. Uh, where, no, actually, no, sorry. I, the first one was a one year deal. And then at the end of that, I went back and I uh, I signed a four year deal, and and that's when they started paying. And you know, as a nineteen twenty year old kid, for well, one of the biggest brands in the world to say we want to pay you this amount per year, plus bonuses if you win Europeans, Commonwealth, win medals, break records, all this sort of stuff. We'll design and make your own spikes for you and for your feet and all that. You're like, you know, and my dad sort of. Kept my feet on the ground because the minute they, I walked in the room, I was like, yes, <laughs> give me a blank piece of paper. I signed it. And my dad's like, no, hold on. Let's just make sure everything's in place before we, uh, you know, then went out get, the back. And we went, like, yes! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then went out the back <laughs> and went, yeah, we got it. Um, uh, and then they signed me on another four-year deal. So, it, it, you know, I'm jumping around. So my life changed on the 27th of July, 1985 at 11.45 p.m. Um, uh, and that was because I was running in one of the Grand Prix meetings. Now, if you watch athletics, you'll know them as diamond league, uh, races. Um, in my era, they were called golden league meetings. And the reason they're called diamond and were called golden, because if you win them all, you win a thousand, uh, sorry, a million dollars, a share of a million dollars worth of diamonds or gold. So there was money in the sport. It was professional. So we used to get appearance fees to race around all the meetings in Europe and then, you would also get bonuses of finishing first, second and first. Depending on how big a star you were, depending on how big your appearance fee was, and if you wasn't a particularly big name, you'll only get a few, in some cases hundred dollars. Always done in US dollars. So once you get onto that circuit, there was money in, in the sport. So your biggest um check came from your clothing contract. And if you had any other out outside sponsors, um I got sponsored by a company that did fruit juice for a while called Just Juice back in the day. I was also sponsored by a company that did jeans. I was, you know, a few little sponsors, you know, here and there. But your money was really made from your clothing contract and if you started to earn money on the circuit. This
1: is when you're starting to learn about how All that's kind of funded. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 world.
2: Because, I mean, you know, I went into it as green as green. And did it interest
1: Um, you, the business of it? Like, why? At the time, why? No, No, the business didn't. The business didn't. Oh, this is great kind of thing. This this is great.
2: All I wanted was Olympic gold medal. All of that was just a byproduct of what I needed to do. It enabled me to be full time. um, And that was great. Um, I wasn't buying flashy cars or anything like that at the time. You know, um, when I was you know, top five in the world. I was driving around in an Astra SR, not even an SRI, you know, an Astra SR. I put a foam spoiler on the back to make it look like an SRI. Uh, Granted, I spent about six grand on stereo on the inside with a bottle of Alpine stuff (laughs) back in the day. But, uh, you know, it wasn't a case of running around. I can remember my first decent car, I bought a, I wish I still had it. Um, And there was one at the same show we was at. Uh, My first big car investment uh, at the end of, about the 87 season when I think I won a silver medal at the world champs, I bought a Mercedes 190E 2.5, 16 valve Cosworth. Ooh. Now they are worth a fortune now. Um, and I wish I'd kept that, but anyway, that was the first time I, you know, decided to splurge on something because I could, but it wasn't about the business. It was about the sport, the business side of it for me. And you mentioned this earlier on was about the team I had around me. I had a team of 11 people to help me do what I do well. So, you know, it started with my main coach. It started with a strength and conditioning, uh, then a the strength and conditioning coach. I had, and not in any particular order. I then had, you know, a dietitian. I had a flexibility coach, um, sports psychologist, exercise physiologist, head physio. My dad was part of my team. I had an agent, um, my girlfriend at the time. And I use that phrase lightly because as a young athlete, that did change quite a lot. Um, whether she liked it or not, she, was a, she became a part of that team. So all of these people had specific roles. Um, they all had to be paid in one way, shape or form. And that was on, you know, on me. Um, you know, so. So It's like
1: your overheads coming from. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. 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 Now they didn't just work for me 24 seven. Um, so it wasn't like I employed these people full time. They worked with other people and I used them as and when I needed them. So, you know, if I needed my physio, um, although he was part of my team and I saw him quite a lot, he would get paid for the time that I used him. And if I wasn't using him, other people were using him, same as my masseur and this and that. And so that's how, you know, how it worked. So it's, it sounds a lot grander than actually it is. Yeah, okay. It's, um, you it know, still adds but up. It, it still adds up. And if you're, if you, the, 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 the downside is if you're not running well and you've got lots of injuries, your, your medical expenses go up. Now there are, you know, I was insured, so operations and stuff were covered. But you know, and some physio um, treatment was covered, um, but certain stuff weren't. I had to, you know, I had to deal with my masseur, my strength conditioning coach, all right. these people. You know,
1: were you? Would you say that that was the one of the toughest things to cut overcome as an athlete? Because what
2: injury? Yeah, yeah, oh, of course it is. There's nothing worse, and I had this for two and a half years of my life. I call it the dark years. So from eighty, eighty eight. To pretty much 91, um, I spent those two years injured, not competing, watching with no disrespect to them in any way, shape or form, but watching British athletes win titles in my event in times that I'd already run quicker. And that's a tough thing to do, to sit and watch other athletes winning European titles or Commonwealth titles or whatever the titles may be in times that you've run quicker and you're thinking, and the world's making a fuss about these people and the country's making a fuss about these people, rightly so. Um, and how did you deal with that? How did you bottle it up? How did, how did you deal with that? Um, how do you deal with it? You don't have no choice. It's going to make or break you. I, I can't change it. It's happening. You've got to accept it. Um, and it's like most things in life. It's either going to make you or it's going to break you. There's no, there's no in-betweens. Uh, and, and for me, the biggest thing I had going for me was the right people around me. Um, and the, the biggest thing was belief in my own ability. And I believed that as long as I could stay healthy, I could be one of, if not the best meter meat around the world. And during those two years, there was a part, even when my dad said to me, Derek, I think we've given it all we can um, because he could see this was eating me up, you know, inside. And he said, look, we've given it everything. We've had all, we've seen all these people. We've traveled the world. We've had all these different surgeries, this and that, and things not working. And I said, dad, I just can't give up. I know if I can stay healthy, I can beat the best in the world. My competition isn't my opposition. My competition is my body. And my dad looked at me and he went, okay, we'll keep pushing. Um, And then I came back in 91, won a world championship, um, and then got myself into position where I was hopefully going to pick a medal up or two medals up in the Olympics in 92, but then injury struck again. Um, So, you know, these things can either make or, or, or break you and no different. We were talking about Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all these people, it's the same in sport. The people who are the most successful are the people who have had the biggest, have had the problems as well. They just don't give up. They just keep going. Very early in my athletics career, I, I think I was at a, a European Championships and walking around the, the, the village, the equivalent of the Olympic village and going to get something to eat. And we're day seven, day eight, whatever, into a two-week competition, whatever it is. And I'm going to get something to eat and I'm in the big dining hall and I'm seeing different athletes from all over Europe walking around and i oh he was the medalist in the javelin? Oh, he won in the 100, he won the hurdles, he, she did this. I remember sitting down and I can't remember who the athlete was. And I was just looking at them thinking, I wonder what they're thinking, how they're feeling. What were they thinking an hour before their race, their final? Were they thinking two hours before? What were they thinking two days before, three days before? What was their thought process? And I became very interested in the mental approach.
1: Because that's where you thought you could gain an advantage. Yeah,
2: because like I said, half in jest you get to an Olympic final as a talented person and then you realize the other seven are just as talented. So what makes the difference between seven talented athletes where one consistently performs at the best? Does mind games come into that? Yeah. Mind games come into it. You, you know, um, uh, so one of the things that happens at a major championships, not just in the final, but for every single round, um, So whether it's your heat, a second round, a semi-final or the final, you generally have to be warmed up and ready to race about somewhere, about 45 minutes before your race, anywhere between 30 minutes and an hour. So you've got to done all your warm up and everything. And then you have to go to a report room and you're sat in a room, in some cases, not much bigger than this van, with the other seven people you're competing against, for half an hour, 40 minutes. And you're just sitting there. You can't get out and go and run. You can't do anything. You've done all your warm up and you're sat in a room, Maybe under the stands or maybe on the warm up track, and you still gotta get from the warm up track to the main stadium. Sometimes that's a walk. Sometimes you get on a minibus and that takes you, and you're stuck in a little minibus like this with the other seven guys you're gonna compete with. And I always say to people, a lot of races are won and lost in that call up room, not won and lost on the track. An hour before a race, it's not a physical thing, it's a 100% mental. You can't do anything else physically, you can't quickly pop to the gym. Go for a quick three mile run, go and do a quick session on the track, a quick starting block session or some 300s, 200s, 100s, whatever. It's done. You're done. Where you are physically is where you are. The thing that's going to make you perform well and at your best or not perform well and at your best is that big muscle between your ears. And it's a total mental game. And I've had, yeah, you know, there are mind games, people trying to stare you out, people trying to hide your bags, take your spikes, people telling you they've changed your lanes. I've had all that. You know, I've had all all those sort of things, but I'm either too thick and too stupid for it to set in or I was able to deal with it. I like to think it was the latter. (laughs) Um, You know, so yeah, it's definitely a mental game and I'm I'm not a psychologist, but I did read and study a lot of psychology um, to see what made these people champions. And yes, you get, freaks of nature that have the ability and that mental stage, you know, you're Usain Boltz, you're Michael Johnson's, you're Michael Jordan's of these worlds. But if you want to study people, you do think they are freaks of nature. They are absolute freaks of nature mentally and physically. So let's take Usain Bolt. Somebody that tall, whose limbs are that long should not be able to turn their legs over as quick as they do. That's just a freak of nature. The guy he's talented. Of course he is. But for someone to do what he did, with the, with, the, with the frame that he built, was yeah. got, man, that's unbelievable. Combine that with the mental attitude that he had, oh, you ain't got much of a chance. You know, Michael Jordan, he took basketball to a new level with his athletic ability, his athleticism, his vision, his ability to try and do things that basketball players could only dream of. You then combine that with this absolute, I'm going to be the best in this game, come hell or high water attitude, it was unbelievable. I listened to something uh, earlier this morning, and this is, this, is, this is a prime example, and I only learned this today. Um, Andre Agassi, tennis player, was playing against Boris Becker. Now, Boris Becker, I'm not a massive tennis expert, so, you know, forgive me on this, but Boris Becker, back in his day, was deemed to have one of the most fearsome serves And there's this game being played and Agassi is getting, um, Boris's serves back. And even the commentator is saying, um, wow, you know, Agassi seems to be reading Boris's mind. He's, he's at the right place, wherever Boris is serving. And that advantage that Boris had, he doesn't seem to have. And they're interviewing Agassi's in this scenario. He's doing a podcast and he says, yeah, he says, um, I, I didn't tell Boris this, but his, his serves scared me. I really didn't know how I could get the better reserves. And then I learned something. He says, Boris had that very weird rocking motion and then he'd throw the ball up and he said, and he had this tick with his tongue and he'd stick his tongue out. And he said, if his tongue came out in the middle, I knew he was going to serve one way. And if his tongue came down out this side, I knew he was going to serve the other way. Now my point in explaining that is Agassiz looked at every part of Becker's game, including where his tongue stuck out and what habits he had and twitches, ticks, whatever movement. And that's how Agassi got the better of Boris's serve, or I say the better, but got to be in the right place. And he said, I told Boris that when Boris retired. Um, and Boris turned around and said, He said, All these years, I thought you were reading my mind, mate. I could not work out how you were getting my serves back the way that you did. You were the only person were able to get to my serves and we had to play. It's I good to that they had points. that reflection. Yeah. So, you know, the, the point of explaining that is it isn't just physical things. It's the mental game as well. Can you imagine that Agassi's success, whether he beat Boris more than he didn't, but Agassi's part of his arsenal to try and beat Becker was to look at the bloke's tongue when he's serving. You don't teach people that. That's not something, you, you know, Jordan was the same. He used to look at people and look at their feet, look at where their body was, and, and know which way he could go and how he could sell them a dummy and all well,
1: sorts. All this is kind of, you've spoken about mental resilience and the fact that you would just keep going. And even when your dad, who you look up to as being the person that pushed you through, was doubting a little mm-hmm. bit and you kept going on that matter. Now that's really inspiring. And okay, out the box everyone's like, well, yeah, that's the mindset I would want. You mentioned when you were younger that you really enjoyed the sport and you were loving yeah, it. Yeah. Would you say that having that mindset has ever held you back in any way? Put you in a mental position you didn't want to be in?
2: Great question. Um, I can't think at the moment of a situation where having that mindset has been, uh, has had a negative effect on me. Um, it might mean that, oh, no, no. I was going to say it might mean that people will look at me and think he's never going to achieve that, but he thinks he is. But then that's basically what happens in the world. And that's what, you know, it's what I do. Unless um, my hamstring snaps. Unless your <laughs> hamstring, yeah, yeah. And even then I still try to get up and finish the race. <laughs> um, so I can't think of a, uh, of a time when it's worked against me. Um, there may be some experts out there that could, no. that, 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 that couldn't say, well, this was a result of, you know, but I can't think of anything. And I, um, and, and again, Corn, another phrase that's been used a gazillion times, you know, I'd rather fail trying than not try at all. Um, 1988, I had Achilles problems. I was at the training camp um, in America before, sorry, in, um, we were in Tokyo before we then flew to Seoul for the Olympics. And the American team and the British team were in the same, staying at the same facility. And it was our, you know, training camp. And it was where we were acclimatized. We were there a good six, seven weeks. My girlfriend at the time was an American athlete. She was a 400 meter runner as well. And I was having Achilles problems and we didn't know whether I would or wouldn't make it to the start line of those games in, in 88. Flew out my bloody surgeon from Munich, uh, physio, uh, my main physio from Munich to look at me and this and that. But anyway, and at one point I was sitting with my girlfriend and I'm sitting, um, in the waiting area to go and see my physio. And I'd have good days with my Achilles and mentally and in bad days, good days, bad days. I just had no idea what was going to happen 10 days, two weeks down the line. And you couldn't happened.
1: figure out the trigger of that. It was either just good or bad.
2: It was good or bad, good or bad. I was getting over a problem, but I just didn't know if I had enough time to be able to compete. Okay. okay so I train then I get a bad reaction. Then a couple of days later, it will settle down. Then I train and then I had to train, but it was a fine line. Anyway, I was sitting there and I wasn't in a good place and she's sitting next to me. And I just said, you know what? sod this for a go. I said. I'm, I'm pulling out. I'm pulling out. I've had enough. I can't take this anymore. And she sat there and said, no, 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 what's wrong. What's wrong. And I said, and I said, I can't take this. One day it's good. One day it's bad. And I'm having a riot old moaning session at her. And she turned around and she said, look, you can't stop now. You're 10 days out. And I said, yeah, so it's easy for you to say I'm the one with this blah, 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 blah. And she says, I'm not saying it for that reason. I'm saying this for you. She said, look, if you pull out now, nobody would feel any, you know, any, you know, Bad towards you. You've gone through a hell of a lot. I think I had like seven or eight operations. On I don't my understand. not understand that. He says, "But you will never know what will happen, and you've got to live with yourself for the rest of your life." She said, "If you give up now, you will never know whether you would have made it to the start line, and if you had made it, what you would have done." And he'll always. I wonder if. I wonder if what could have, what could have. I'm not leaving but anything you, on the table. But if you carry on and fail, at least you can live the rest of your life knowing. It wasn't going to happen, She says, I'd rather you be in that position than the other way. And I did exactly that. And actually warming up for the first round on a 400, my Achilles snapped. And that put pay an hour before the race. It completely snapped, Uh, ruptured and goodness knows what. And you know what? I thank her for that because it was the right thing to do. Because I knew whatever I did, I wasn't going to make it to the start line. And I kind of, from that moment on, decided I would always embark on any, any challenge I do until I'm physically proven that it's not going to happen, whatever that be in life, sport and, or business.
1: And after your first business didn't happen, where did you then go from there? So- <laughs> the, Achilles, um, the Achilles had snapped in that business yeah. and you had to repair and go again.
2: Well, I mean, it, it, it's simple. Um, you can't not do anything. Uh, something needs to be done. Um, as I did when I, uh, had the whole Barcelona incident, I sulked and moaned and the old bottom lip came out for a number of months, you know, when I blamed everything and everybody else. And then you realize actually all fingers point back at you. Um, and again, another saying you can point at you and there's one finger pointing at the other one, but the other three are pointing at you. Um, and it was that scenario. And then for me, a bit of fortune. And we need a little bit of fortune. We need a bit of a falling wind in our life. We need a break in our life sometimes. And I got invited out to uh, Miami to speak at a convention conference called the Turnaround Convention. Don't even know if it's still going or whatever. And it's basically a lot of what I refer to as dragons, very successful entrepreneurs, that set up this organization to help businesses that were failing on the way to bankruptcy And they would look at these organizations and either bring people in, make investments, bring the companies back up, sell the companies off, make their profits or take, keep the companies going and take their, you know, their pound of flesh, so to speak. And I don't even know how they got hold of me. Um, And I I got it through my then agent and I said, they want you to come and speak about your experiences with with Olympics. Really? Yeah. Just be open and honest. Uh, Okay. So I went out and didn't have a presentation or anything. I just winged it. And they loved it. And the agency who had contacted my agent, he said, that's fantastic. How long has Derek been speaking? That was his first event. Wow. Um, And and that sort of got relayed back to me. And that's when I realised, I think this is where- You can make a career out of a personal brand. And do you know what? It wasn't, I didn't think that. See, this is, this is the weird thing. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about making a career out of a personal brand. That phrase is something I've only been really working around in the last 10 years or so. It was, I reckon I could be good at this. I want to, I want to teach. I want to coach people my way. Um, And that's what got me. One of the things that makes the, apart from um, one of the big ingredients in resilience is something that we all have. You have it in what you're doing now. It's the love for what you do. If you hated doing this, the question is, would you do it? If you absolutely hated this, would you do it?
1: I think you would end up stopping because mentally you, Not wouldn't get anything be, out of it. you wouldn't be getting anything out
2: of it. And also the first bit of, the first challenge you had, the first bit of rocky road that you had, it would be the easiest thing to say, oh God, no, it's too hard. But if you loved it, as you do, you continue doing it. And I was loving what I was doing. I had no idea it was going to turn into a business that it, that it has. And I was going to be standing in front of the biggest audience. I've had 80,000 people or 79,700 or whatever it was. You know, I never thought I was going to be standing in an audience of nearly 80,000 people. I never thought last night I was speaking in a, a a room at Oxford, sorry, at Cambridge university where Bill Clinton Barack Obama, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, had all stood and spoke. This room had history. Actually, they also mentioned Katie Price. So in my opening gambit, I turned around <laughs> and said, well, at least I won't be the worst speaker you've had in this room. <laughs> but you know, they've had, uh, only messing Katie. Um, they've had some unbelievable world leaders. And if you want to come there. on Katie, <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, I got invited to the White House, you know, to speak. Barack Obama has mentioned me in a, in a, in one of his uh, speeches. All these things I had no idea was going to, was going to happen. Um, so I I got into it basically for the love of it. And I think that is part of that package of resilience, having the love of something that you, you know, that you're doing.
1: And considering that resilience, if there's only one piece of advice that you can give from what you've learned since that moment, kind of what would it be to people that are looking at where they go after finishing and being left out, out in the kind of, in the dark?
2: You're not finished. A first thing is you don't look at it as being finished. You know, um, if you want to use the word failure, a failure is a lesson. Um, and, and the best thing to do, a failure is only the failure. If you give up on everything after that, Challenge. I, I call them challenges. I call you know everything in life is a challenge, um, rather than a problem. Um, I like to see them see them as a challenge. You know, a Rubik's cube, which I do in some of my presentations on stage. A Rubik's cube isn't a problem; it's a challenge. Very difficult to do, but it's doable. World record now is three point something seconds. It was only broken not so long ago. Best I've ever done is about thirty seconds, thirty six seconds. I think my best is it takes me on average now about a minute and a half. But they're doable. Most people will pick it up and twist and turn for twenty minutes, half an hour and go, give up. I picked one up when I was thirteen years of age at school. They were the in thing, 13, 14 years of age. And I remember messing it up and then learning and learning, reading about it, learning and learning, learning. And it took me about four months to get it back to normal. I went, Yes, I've done it. And I can remember in that period, you could hear this on my mum and I said, Will you put that damn thing down? Because the noise used to, you know, uh, annoy <laughs> them. And I got it back to normal. And I went, yes, I've done it. And I messed it back up and goes, right, how did I do it? Another two months before I got it back to, back to normal again. And then I worked out some formulas of how to do it. And then I came up with my own formulas. Now, they're not the quickest by any imagination. And I don't think I could ever get any quicker than I did of about 30 seconds. Now these kids are unbelievable. They can do it in three, four seconds. But the point is I didn't give up. And I believe that every... And i said this before, failure really is a lesson. What did I do wrong? What didn't I do that make that not work? Is that physically impossible to do? Do I need now to look somewhere else? Uh, There was a study done in America, with some students, I cannot remember the university or or the, and they, they basically had a couple of thousand kids to embark on these different challenges and about, and you could go as far as you want with them or you could finish it or not. There was no good, bad, right or wrong. This was just a test to see, or sorry, an experiment, an assessment to see how people got on. 70 odd percent of the people gave up on their given, and they all weren't given the same thing, by the way, gave up on their given tasks mentally before it was physically proved whether it was or wasn't possible to complete. 70 percent. That's three quarters as good as. To be
1: honest, I would have actually thought it would have been higher than that. Well, I was absolutely
2: shocked it was that high. So, I, th- you know. I
1: think there's more knowledge on that now. The, the, the It's the rate of things succeeding is like so slim at the minute, mm. but it really does take someone different to approach it. And something that I've learned, I think that my biggest takeaway from so far, and I haven't done many yet, mm. but um, I've also had in life, love the opportunities to meet so many amazing people. cars have provided a huge opportunity to do that mm-hmm. and through the privilege of growing up um with my dad that had a company and I met all kinds of interesting people and I think that if I look at people that I'm inspired by, Elon Musk, yourself, guests that come on here it could have been, it could have been anyone that I felt inspired by, and I thought, what is it that I've got that I see in all these other people, and what do I see that they've all got in common okay and I think it's a love of learning, and I I love sitting here and absorbing knowledge and learning. Whether it's about something that i personally don't see myself doing, I don't yep. see myself competing yep. in athletics here or opening a sports brand, or understand? Mm. That. But I love learning, and there'll be some kind of takeaway yeah, yeah. within that conversation and that moment of learning. Yeah. And I, I see, I can see that, that in nearly everybody that I speak to is that they just love learning.
2: Yeah. I, 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 and I take that another stage as well is they never think they're too old, too successful to learn something. And to me, that's really important. I also think, and I got asked this last night, um, you know, one of the things people like yourself, people like me, Elon Musk, um, all these successful people, you, and I keep referring to Michael Jordan, who happens to be one of my biggest heroes I think in my he life. He might be your favorite. Yeah. yeah. Well, why not? Between him, my dad, and another athlete called Daley Thompson, they're my three heroes in life. But one of the things is that they're they're never satisfied. Always want to keep on pushing. When I was dating my wife, as she is now, she was a girlfriend. Early days, twenty odd years ago, you met Maria, obviously on the Yeah. And twenty-something um, years ago, we're having. You know, these deep and meaningful conversations, and we're sitting down talking and talking about what we want to get out of life and this and that. And she actually turned around and said, I feel sorry for you. And I said, Why is that? And she said, You're never going to be happy. You're always striving for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Anyway, the conversation goes on. And I was saying something. She went, actually, and she interrupted me and she goes, I owe an apology. Why? She goes, I got it wrong. What makes you happy is always striving, it's not necessarily achieving it, it's the journey as opposed to sometimes a destination, again, another very corny uh, kind of phrase. And that's me. Um, one of the, re- you know, and my wife will tell you all the sports that I've done. Um, it was her suggestion to, to get into bikes as a hobby. And I ended up turning that hobby into a, into a sport. Um, and, you know, she, she always says, you can't have a hobby. You're either fully in or out. You know, and it's, you know, for me having a hobby is like someone being a little bit pregnant. It ain't going to happen. You're either in or you're out. <laughs> and I can't, you know, and that's how I am in life. You know, I'll either give it a hundred percent and I'll lose it all or I'll give it a hundred percent and it will, I can't do the the in-between thing. Thank goodness I'm not into gambling. I would <laughs> either be super wealthy or in serious trouble.
1: Derek, I've absolutely loved this conversation we've had today. We usually wrap up about an hour, but we could talk. But- <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah yeah. thank you for your insights and sharing your journey on my podcast and yeah no problem thank you again this amazing yeah no
2: i wish you the best of luck i hope it really goes well thank you